And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. We just celebrated the Feast of Corpus Christi, and uh, more and more dioceses are lifting dispensations and urging the faithful to return to Mass. And uh, one of the happy coincidences, uh, might say, in the providence of God here, is that uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Edward Sree, is celebrating the 10th anniversary of his outstanding book, Biblical Walk Through the Mass. Uh, Edward Sree is a theologian, a speaker, an author of uh, many books, and also the host of the weekly podcast, All Things Catholic. Edward, good to have you back here. Thanks. Oh, so good to be with you again, Al. Let's uh, tell me, you've added a video component to this book now, is that right? Well, there was a video component to to begin with. It was a five-week kind of like Bible study on the Mass, and uh, what we did is we did a refresh of the videos as well. Okay. Uh, So originally it was just me giving a lecture in a church here. What we did was we filmed in a beautiful cathedral, um, and we're moving around from all different parts of the church and moving around the different parts of the Mass, so hopefully the same good content, but with uh, a fresh look and beautiful cinematography. Yeah, Yeah, very good. Um, You know, I if you're, and you point this out at the very beginning of the book, uh, I was outside the Catholic Church for many, many years, even as an active Christian, and I didn't give the Mass much consideration because, you know, it's what Catholics did, and I wasn't a Catholic. Uh, and so I didn't recognize what I realized once I was uh, reconciled to the Catholic Church, and that is that the Mass is intensely biblical. Uh, it isn't just a, a you know a pastiche of various uh, biblical passages here, but is it is itself an expression of the biblical faith and has tremendous amount of content to it. Um, were you always aware of that? Were you raised Catholic? Yeah, I was raised Catholic and went to mass all my life and had a wonderful Catholic school experience where we went to daily masses in our Catholic grade school. So. I had a wonderful experience with the liturgy. I think that really touched my life, yeah. some beautiful liturgy and reverence from our priests, and we were taught reverence. To, I'll never forget, we'd walk into the church, all you know, lined up, boys' line, girls' line. We'd go to our pew, but before we went to our pew, we all knelt down, yeah. and we yeah. all said together, Jesus, I adore you here in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. Made wow. the sign of the cross, and very reverent. I mean, I... Like to this day, whenever I walk in church, I just have those words in my head as I pray them, you know, so I'm yeah. very thankful. It really impacted my life. But did I have someone walk through and explain the Mass to me? I, I'm sure my teachers did. I'm sure my priests did, but I don't remember that. Right, <laughs> I remember right. the encounter with the liturgy. Yeah. Uh, it was later in life when I had, you know, I went off to college, Indiana University in Bloomington, and uh, I was, you know, had a lot of friends that were involved in groups like InterVarsity, Campus Crusade for Christ, you know, so a lot of these Protestant groups, and they're asking me questions, oh, why is this just, oh, so much ritual, and right. it's, you know, it's not a friendship with Jesus, and, you know, it's not biblical, and, and I didn't know, I was like, oh, I don't know, we just do this because we're Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> right. so I didn't really know, and then I was thankfully, you know, led to some good, you know, books, and that helped me to understand more and more over the years the biblical background, and now... It's like every word, every ritual, every symbol in the Mass yeah. comes from Scripture. I know, it's and amazing. Helps, yeah, and, and the more we know that biblical background, the more we can really encounter Jesus profoundly in the liturgy and give our hearts to Him more. Yeah. Let, let me just let me throw a, a, a detail from the, the Mass that uh, maybe people don't notice. Uh, it's when the celebrant washes his hands before the Eucharistic prayer. I assume a lot of people believe he's just practicing good hygiene there 
What's behind that detail of the mass? Yeah, he was doing that long before COVID, right? <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, like, like that's one part of the mass where, you know, we could be tempted to check out, right? It's kind of like it's halftime, we feel like. Right, okay, well, right. you know. You know, uh, and, and I'm not really involved. He's just up there. He's doing his warm-up, right. <laughs> but when we understand biblically, this is, you know, this is something that the priests of the Old Testament did. And they did it before they offered sacrifice. They did it before they entered into the Holy Sanctuary, where they're going to encounter Almighty God. Yeah. And, and so when we, if we understand the biblical background, when we, we see the priest washing his hands, that's signaling to us that, that our little church, you know, is about to become a temple of the Lord, a new holy of holies. Almighty God is about to come down on our altars, for real. Uh, under the appearance of bread and wine, as the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. And so when we see the priest washing his hands, he's getting ready to go into that holy of holies. Gotta, we got to get ready, yeah. because that holy of holies is coming to us. We, we have to prepare our hearts to, uh-huh. to encounter God in this most profound way. Uh, you start out uh, in the book with just the basic question of what is the Mass, foundationally. Uh, what is the Mass? Somebody asks you, uh, uh, Edward, uh, what is the Mass? And you've got yourself, you know, 60 seconds to say. What do you say? Oh, I just basically say it is the central act of Christian worship. Is what I write about in the book, I think, in that opening chapter. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the celebration of the Eucharist that Jesus instituted at the Last Supper, when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in memory of me. And, and the apostles and their successors, and by extension all the bishops and the priests today, uh, they're, they're continuing to be obedient to Jesus and yeah. carrying out that ritual of that first Eucharist, that first Mass, on Holy Thursday night at the Last Supper. Very good. Let's start with the sign of the cross, then. Where does it come from? Oh, yeah. <laughs> sign of the cross, that's the opening prayer. Sometimes I think we Catholics think it's just, oh, you know, this is the way we just start praying. No, no, no. The sign of the cross is itself a powerful prayer, and we can use it all throughout our daily lives. It's so fitting we use it at the beginning of Mass. Um, biblically, there's two things we're doing. There's, we're calling on God's name. We say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that's something we find all going all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 4. Adam's descendants through the line of Seth begin calling on the name of the Lord. Abraham calls on the Lord's name. Moses calls on God's name. David calls on the name of the Lord. So what does this mean? Uh, it, to call on God's name is to invoke His presence. Uh, we're calling on the divine name, inviting Him into our lives in a powerful way. And that's why Jesus says, when two or three are gathered in my name, mm-hmm. there I am in your midst. And so I just want to encourage all the listeners, that not just a Mass, but any time in your life you just want to, you really need God's help, you need His guidance, you need His strength, you need His encouragement, make the sign of the cross, call on the holy name of God, invoke His presence. Yeah. But then the, the ritual of tracing the cross over the body, yes. um, that, that also has some biblical roots going all the way back to Ezekiel 9. Ezekiel's living in a time of cultural crisis when many people in Jerusalem have fallen away from the true faith, and they're worshiping pagan gods, living pagan, uh, living a pagan lifestyle. And God announces judgment on, on Jerusalem, that Jerusalem's going to be overtaken by the Babylonians, the temple's going to be destroyed, people will be carried off into slavery. But there are some people in the midst of this pagan culture that remain faithful. They don't want to follow the pagan ways around them. They want to be faithful to Jesus, or to, well, to Yahweh in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're going to be marked with a special spiritual mark. And Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4 describes this mark as having the shape of the Hebrew letter Ta, which looks like a cross. Right. 
And, and so this cross is a sign of their fidelity. These are the faithful ones, not going along with the corruption around them. But it's also a sign of God's protection, that God's going to protect them when judgment comes. They're not going to be swept away by the Babylonians. So the early Christians, you can just imagine, they, write, they waxed eloquently on this, is the whole idea that their sign of the cross that they were practicing the first couple centuries of Christianity, they saw was prophetically foreshadowed by this Hebrew letter Ta on the mark uh, on, the, on the foreheads in Ezekiel 9. And they saw that, look, when we make the sign of the cross in our pagan Roman world, we're saying we're not going to live like the Romans. We're going to be faithful to Jesus' standards for life. And we want God's protection in our lives. And so I think in our own day and age, we can relate, too, because we live in a very pagan culture around us, don't we? Yep. And, um, and we want to make the sign of the cross. It strengthens us to say, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to follow the standard of the cross in my life. And I need your protection. Protect me from all harm, all danger, all fear. Protect me most of all from evil, from sin. Uh, so whenever you experience temptation, doubt, discouragement, temptation and purity, temptation to lose your temper, whatever it is you struggle with, and make the sign of the cross. It invokes God's holy presence, it marks you, it gets, strengthens you. The demons flee, the early Church Fathers said. They run away when we make the sign of the cross. And so it's a beautiful tradition, and it's a most fitting way to begin the Mass. Let me jump forward to the Kyrie. Uh, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Why three times? And why do we do it in Greek? Uh, you know, there's a number of prayers we do in threes. Uh, maybe I'll say it in a, a simple way, uh, just conversationally, you know, just with someone we love when we hurt them. You know, like, I, like sometimes I'll, I'll say something that maybe hurts my wife's feeling or I'm not thoughtful. And, you know, and, it, you know and, and I say sorry. Now, if I just, let's say I, you know, I don't know, I stepped on her toe, and I say, oh, I'm sorry. But let's say I said something that really hurt her deeply. Yeah. <laughs> I might say oh, honey, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I shouldn't have said it like that. I, I, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I say sorry multiple times mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I have a sense of, like, you know, I, I've hurt her and hurt the relationship and the seriousness of it, what I did, and, and, and I feel badly, and I want, I, I, I value her so much. I, I don't just make an apology. Oh, sorry. It's not like that. It's like a, it's a heartfelt sorry. And so I think that's why we have in the confitior, we say, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, like, well, I mean, who talks that way? Why do we need to talk that way? Well, <laughs> we actually do talk this way to people right, we love. Right. We say, sorry, multiple times. Same thing with Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Uh, why do we use Greek with the Kyrie? Yeah, you know, this goes back to the, to the very early Church, that they had this, and so even in the Latin rite, uh, we continue to keep the, the Greek, and it, it kind of reminds us of some of the universality of our faith. Right. Uh, certainly uh, you have the, the Eastern rites, many of them, you know, the, you know, the Greek uh, rites that we have, would, the youth Greek in the liturgy would have this, um, but, it, but it goes back very early on, and we, all, we know the New Testament's written in Greek, so there's a connection to that as well. Yeah. Uh, to the Gloria. Uh, Gloria uh, is taken... Uh, from the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, uh, at least the kickoff is, uh, these are the words of the angels, right? Yeah, that's what I love to highlight here, is that this is this is a Christmas song. Because yeah. that's what the first time we you know hear those words, glory to God in the highest feast of people on earth, was the angels over Bethlehem singing that. Yep. Um, but my question would be then, why are we singing Christmas songs? Here we are in the middle of you know hot June. <laughs> why, why am I still singing a, a Christmas song? And it's because every time I go to the liturgy, that that same mystery of Christmas is made present to us sacramentally. The, the God that uh, became man and, and made himself manifest to the world in the Christ child in the manger, 
That same God is making himself manifest to us, his very body and blood, in the Eucharist upon our altars. And so just as the angels welcomed Christ 2,000 years ago with those words, with great joy, so we, with, with hearts full of joy, with echo the words of the angels to welcome Christ in our midst. My guest, Edward Street, giving us a biblical walk through the Mass. This is an outstanding uh, book, but it's also a, a program available through Ascension Press with videos, and uh, I recommend it to you. We'll have it linked. We'll be back in just a moment, though. We're going to continue walking through the Mass with Dr. Edward Street. I'm Al Cresta. We are called to admonish the sinner and instruct the ignorant. At AveMariaRadio.net's Poll of the Week, we want to know, have you ever tried to fraternally correct someone? Let us know by going to AveMariaRadio.net and clicking on Poll of the Week. Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Edward Sree. We are doing a biblical walk through the Mass. We were, last segment, we were at the introductory rites, and as you can imagine, we won't finish walking through the Mass today. Um, but uh, Ascension Press has an outstanding uh, large study program. Uh, the book, uh, Biblical Walk Through the Mass, is part of that. Uh, there's also video, and we'll have uh, the website address uh, at our site so to link you. So you can get a, a taste of this remarkable program, um, Edward. Let me let's. We were talking about some of the introductory rites. Uh, let's jump to uh, the liturgy of the Word, uh, and that, along with the liturgy of the Eucharist, is really the heart of the Mass. Uh, I I would venture to say that a significant number of Catholics, uh, even committed Catholics, don't really get what the readings are doing, what the relationship of the readings are to one another. So we got a first reading, we have a, a, a psalm response, we have uh, a middle reading, then we have uh, the gospel. Can you lay out for us how those readings are related to one another? Yeah, I like to think of you know the liturgy of the Word as the greatest Bible study on earth. We get so much of Scripture yeah. if we just go to Mass every Sunday. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think uh, a lot of a lot of Protestant churches, not all, but a lot of them, you know, it's just based on you know the pastor or committee deciding which verses we're going to focus on. But man, in the Catholic Church, you're forced to like preach on everything. I love it. I think it's like the third Tuesday or the third Thursday of Advent every year. A priest has to give a homily on Matthew chapter one a long genealogy, a long list of 42 names. <laughs> I love it. Wow, what are we going to do with that one? Um, but, but it's great because we really get so much of Scripture. So we have these different readings. The first reading comes from the Old, Test, uh, from the Old Testament, and it's, you know, the Old Testament isn't old in the sense of, like, it's not relevant anymore. Mm-hmm. No, no, it, it helps us know the whole story and what God's doing to prepare yes. uh, the people of Israel and all humanity for the coming of the Messiah. And so the very prophecies and hopes and prefiguring, so it's important to know that story. Um, and then we have the responsorial psalm, where we we take the Jewish tradition where they would pray the 150 psalms, you know, and they, they had it in the 
in, in the Temple Liturgy, and great monks in the medieval period in our Catholic Church had prayed those 150 psalms over and over again, and so we kind of continue that tradition of praising God with His own words of praise and thanksgiving and petition from the psalms themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have a New Testament reading, which, is, which comes from you know, one of the epistles of Paul or Peter or Jude or maybe the book of Revelation. During the Easter season, we focus on Acts of the Apostles. And then, of course, the climax of the liturgy of the Word is the, the Gospel reading, mm-hmm. which is the very center of, of, of salvation history, and that's the story of Jesus Christ himself. So you're really getting, again, if you, if you go through the Mass, you're exposed to so much of Scripture. Um, there was a three-year cycle of readings that the ancient Jews had in Jesus' time, so I think it's fitting that we, as Catholics today, kind of echo that. We have a three-year cycle of readings that zoom in on different parts of the Scriptures, so we make sure we get the breadth of God's Word speaking to us. Um, is there a connection between the Old Testament reading and the Gospel? Yeah, usually there is. There's some kind of connection. So, for example, you know, it, it's fun, like, like when I... Uh, you know, I remember Scott Hahn tells the story of when he was he made this discovery, his biblical like connection between Peter getting the keys of the kingdom and the and a foreshadowing of the keys of the kingdom in Isaiah 22, yes, yes. Uh, where it's, it's all about the role of the right hand man of the king, the the prime minister of the king that's in charge of the day to day affairs of the kingdom. He was given the keys of the kingdom, and Scott's like, "Wow, that's amazing!" <laughs> As a Protestant, he was a Catholic. Yet. Wow, that that makes sense out of the, the role of the papacy and Peter and all. And then he goes to a Catholic mass. And guess what the readings were? When you have Matthew 16, the Gospel, they had Isaiah 22 in the Old Testament. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I didn't come up with that. The Christians have been doing this for a long time. <laughs> Not my discovery. <laughs> right. That's good. You know. So, yeah, yeah usually there's, there's a, it's thematic or it's a prophecy or a promise. There's some connection usually between the, the Old Testament reading and the Gospel. Uh Homily. What is a homily? It's not a sermon, uh, per se. I mean, who gets to give it? What is it? Yeah, so think of the homily as uh, it's it's the pride, you know, the, the Church describes it as the primary place that we actually are taught the faith. You know, so you think of you've got catechism, you've got faith formation programs, RCA, all that's wonderful. But the homily should be the crucial place where we get the expounding of the Scriptures and the explanation of the Scriptures and applying it to our lives and our living of the Catholic faith today. You know, so, you know, the priest or the deacon gives the homily, the ordained minister, because he's he's not just sharing his own reflections. Anyone can write a reflection. I, right. I write reflections, I write books and all. Um, but, but the priest, and the, the ordained ministry, either the bishop, the priest, or the deacon, they're representing the Church. They're representing the wider body of Christ, which is something I can't do in the way they can. And so it makes sense that they're the ones that are giving the explanation of the Scriptures and applying it to our lives today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, does the Church have any guidelines on the length of a homily? Uh, I, I know many lay people do, but the Church doesn't <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I will say, uh, uh, Pope Francis has written some beautiful things about the importance of giving homilies you know, and one of the things he did say is, you know, like, you know, when they're too long, like, it's hard to, it's hard for lay people to follow. And yeah. so you want to have, like, a central theme. Yeah. You yeah. want it to come from the priest's own kind of personal rough, uh, reflection, their own encounter with God's Word. Like, they've been challenged by God's Word, and, and they're being um, inspired by it in some way. And I, I you know, I, I will say this, it applies in my life as a lay person. I don't give homilies, but I, I do teach, and I know that I can get up and I could just teach about a biblical passage, or I can teach some doctrine, and that, mm-hmm. that's that's easy. But I know I'm a much better teacher when I spend time 
in the chapel and I'm praying about what I'm going to be teaching about yeah, yeah. and reflecting on it. And I'm like either in awe over this mystery or mm-hmm. I'm challenged by something from the scriptures or I'm encouraged, you know, or I realize I need to repent in a certain, like when I find myself wrestling with the biblical text or this doctrine of the faith, um, and then I'm teaching, it's flowing from my own contemplation of the truth. And that's something Aquinas says that, yeah, all, all, all teachers, whether you're a homilist as a, in the liturgy or a lay person teaching, it's really flow from our own contemplation yes. of the mystery. So we're not just we're not just teaching algebra here. Right. We're teaching Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I I couldn't couldn't agree more. Uh, and I find the same thing in my experience. Um, let's just uh, just jump to the liturgy of the Eucharist here in the preparation of the gifts. Uh, this is often looked upon as halftime, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, we, we, we have a breather now. Uh, we did the prayer of the faithful. You know, had the, the, the homily, the creed, prayer of the faithful. And now let's just pause for a moment here. What are, tell me, preparation of the gifts, where's that drawn from? Yeah, so uh, there's a number of things that are happening here, you know, that, again, you can, you can view it as, like, I'm not really involved. Like, let's take, you have the procession of, from the, of the gifts, of the bread and wine from the back of the church, and there's some family maybe chosen they, you know, by the ushers to go bring those gifts up to the priest, and, oh, I wasn't chosen, this isn't really important, I'll just check out for a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. But again, I, I, I love thinking about the, the biblical background to this. You know, so you have gifts of bread and wine. And in the Scriptures, these aren't just simple, tiny little gifts. Bread isn't just like a side dish, like, you know, you get your pots and then there's your garlic bread on the side. No, no. It was like the most basic type of food that was needed to sustain life. That the Old Testament has an image of the idea of the staff of bread. Like bread is like a staff; you lean on it; it supports you. Yeah. Uh, so to part with bread is like is a sacrifice. Um, like we just throw bread to the birds, but for the ancient Jewish mindset, to part with bread is a sacrifice. Same yeah. thing, like the gift of wine, they would offer as a sacrifice in the altars, as a libation offering in the temple. Uh, and so these are sacrifices. And so when you have the bread and wine. It, it, it's reminding us of the sacrifice we are uh, of our own lives that we want to offer to Jesus. Now, in the early church, they gave tons of stuff. You know, it wasn't just bread and wine. You know, like everybody would show up with some kind of gift to want to offer something to God. They'd mm. show up like if you made grapes, you bring grapes. You know, if you made candles, you bring your candles. You made wax, you bring your wax. You know, whatever. It is. Like you, they brought all this stuff, and so you know, we've trimmed that down to just bread and wine. Um, but even when we give our money. You know, like my little girls just love it when they, the basket comes around. Like, Daddy, Daddy, give me a dollar. You know, I want to put the money in. Um, but, but there's something beautiful about this desire. I want to give, and even though I'm just throwing coins now, mm-hmm. it kind of rep- or, or dollar bills. It represents many hours of work, hours of you know my my life. And that's why you have that line. You know, so the work, you know, the fruit of the earth and the work of human, human hands. hands. Yeah. Uh, and, and and what I what I want to think us to think about is when we see that procession of these people bringing the bread and wine and then bringing the, the basket of the money up to the altar, those people are representing all of us. And those gifts represent our lives, all of our works, all of our joys, all of our sufferings. And it's moving from the back of the church, processing all the way up into the hands of the priests, and they're going to go up on the altar. And, and there's this movement from the, from the back of the church to the altar up to God. And the idea is in that movement, I like to just picture just spiritually, it's like my own heart, Jesus, I'm, I, I'm, I want my heart to be moved, to move to that altar, to be put upon the altar and, and offered up to the Father in union with your sacrifice. 
Because that's what life, that's what our, we're made for. We're made to worship God, and yes. the worship of God is seen mostly in sacrifice. In sacrifice, uh, yeah. The sacrifice in our hearts. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, let me go to the Eucharistic prayer here. Uh, where, you know, I, when I returned to the Catholic Church, I recognized that um, uh, people were really picky about these Eucharistic prayers. <laughs> you, you, can't, uh, you can't improvise. Um, what are the source of the prayers, and why the focus on precision? Yeah, well, the, the the prayers themselves, many of them go back, you know, particularly the Roman canon goes all the way back to the to the early church, um, and they they reflect certain patterns of prayer that you find in Scripture, where you have praising God uh, and thanking Him, uh, and then you're you're pouring out your heart in supplication and uh, and and begging Him for for our needs and the needs of the world. Uh, and that, that's a traditional pattern of prayer that you find in Scripture, and the Eucharistic prayers themselves follow those those patterns, especially from the Psalms. But when you get to the words of consecration, I mean, that's that's, that's especially where, you know, you know the, the most sacred words right. in all of the right. words. <clears throat> those are the words that Jesus spoke on Holy Thursday night when he instituted the Eucharist, and he commanded us to do this, to do what he just did, you know, as he took bread and took wine and said these words. And so... Uh, that's why there's, you, you notice the priest tends to slow down a little bit. Uh, they're a little more reverent when they speak these words. You may have bells rung right after this, right. because it's at that moment uh, that uh, that the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. Yeah, um, yeah. That's a, I, I've noticed that too. There is a, there is often a kind of a, a deep breath that's taken uh, at the beginning of the words of institution. Uh, the mystery of faith passage. Uh, where does that come from? The mystery of faith. You know, just when the priest holds up the host. Yeah. And it says, "Oh, okay, yeah, right, yeah." He says, "Mystery so, of faith." Yeah. 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 This is. It's. It's not just like a kind of an instruction. Say, okay, okay, here's a word, and now you need to say something. You know, it goes all the way back to something St. Paul said uh, in his letter to Timothy uh, about the, the the mystery of our faith. And what is the summation of the mystery of our faith? It is Jesus Christ offering up his very life, his body and blood for us on the cross, and that that profound mystery is made present to us here in the Eucharist. That reality of his sacrificial offering uh, comes to us. Um, and so it's, it's as if, like, we, we come to—I would like to say, when we go to Mass, we go to Calvary. <laughs> right. You know, that the mystery of Christ's sacrificial love on the cross for our redemption is, is sacramentally, but really made present to us so that we can enter into it. And so the, the priest, in awe over what's just happened, that, that sacrifice being made present, he's holding up the host, the body of Christ, for us as the mystery of faith, and proclaims that to us so we can respond with great love. Right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Edward, talking with you again. And again, we'll make sure that people have easy access to getting a biblical walk through the Mass, the whole program there. Thanks. Thanks for having me. God bless.